Please stand for the reading of today's epistle lesson from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You be, may be seated. Well, good morning, friends. I'm Reverend Casey Orr. I'm one of the pastors here at Brentwood United Methodist Church and the director of Caring Ministries. And I was really glad that we got a word from our senior pastor, Dr. Davis Chapel. Um, but we have an update since he recorded that message. We are um, excited to report that even more pledges have come in. We're up to 316 pledges now, um, representing $2.5 million, which with that matching gift means we're at 11 million dollars now, which is really exciting and really encouraging as we look forward to our future and kind of keep moving. And while we're well on our way, um, a lot of you know that I really love to greet our children in worship. It makes me so happy to see them. Um, one of mine was wearing a pink fireman's hat um, today. So, you know, they're just doing their thing in worship and we're glad they're here. And um, I was thinking about the role that our kids play in this capital campaign, and it can sometimes feel like we're talking over their heads, but um, kids, I wanted to tell you today that if um, this is something you wanna be part of, you can talk to your parents about it. And a um, dollar a month or 50 cents a month, if you did a dollar of your allowance every month for the next three years, your $36 would make an enormous difference in getting us closer to having a really cool new children's area and a beautiful new worship spaces. So. I want you to hear from Pastor Casey today that your gift and your uh, role in all of this makes a really big difference and we're really glad um, that you all are here. And I have another announcement for you today, something that we haven't quite shared yet. Um, it's that on November 5th, We'll be celebrating All, Sun All Saints Sunday, um, a high holy day in the life of our church when we remember um, the ones we have loved and lost, the members of our church who have died um, and entered their life eternal in the last year. We will be um, coming back to the sanctuary after those three worship services that morning um, for an additional opportunity to praise God at a hymn festival. And so we will have our adults, our children, our youth choir. Um, we'll have our orchestra, and they're pretty good. 
and we'll have our handbells, we'll have our praise band. We are so excited to have kind of all our musicians coming out in force. And then we will have the opportunity to join them with our voices and sing some of our favorite hymns of our faith. And so I hope that you will take this moment as permission to take out your phone, um, open your calendar app, put November 5th, at 4 p.m. right on in there and don't miss it. We will be so glad to be together on that day. It'll be such a special time and we are really looking forward to it. And so um, here we are, we're moving into a new sermon series today. Um, It is about call stories. And so over the last several weeks, we explored all um, many of the ways that we are called together as a community. And now we're gonna get a little more personal um, and consider the stories of people who have been called by God. And in so doing, we'll be exploring our own call stories along the way. And so we often think that God calls only the brightest and the best, but more often and thankfully, God calls the least and the last. And so we're gonna dive into this new series, into this text that Theron read for us today with a passage from the first chapter of Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. And I want you to know a little bit about um, the church in Corinth to kind of make sense of what Paul's worried about and what his concerns are here. So the city of Corinth, it had been conquered and completely destroyed, leveled in 146 BCE. And so it was in ruins and then refounded about a hundred years later. And so since it kind of had this new beginning, it didn't have any of that old money. So the people though, they were full of um, really high energy. They were trying to make it and they quickly regained a lot of their former greatness. And so it was once said about Corinth, quote, it was a city where Greeks Latins, Syrians, Asiatics, Egyptians and Jews bought and sold, labored and reveled, quarreled and hobnobbed in the city and its ports as nowhere else in Greece. And so while Corinth was in fact one of the most important cities in Greece, it also developed a bit of an unsavory reputation. Big athletic spectacles, parties, it was intellectually alert, materially prosperous, but morally corrupt and indulgent. So Paul has spent 18 months there and had evidently grown quite a a great group of, of converts. And so some of them, some of the converts in the Corinthian church were intellectual people of means, but most of the believers came from a lower social strata. So the social makeup of the church in Corinth really was a microcosm of the larger city in which they were growing. And so the letter opens with Paul addressing this concern that the Corinthian Christians have divided themselves into groups that are at odds with one another. And do you know what their concern was? They wanted to be identified with the most powerful Christian figure a massive problem because what they had done is made Christ a cause for division rather than the one who had saved and united them. So their preoccupation with power and influence was evidence that far too much of their surrounding culture had made its way into the church, an issue that we certainly struggle with today. 
The division that we face in the American church is complicated, and we will never be able to measure the full extent to which it is made worse by our corrupt and ugly and messy political system in our culture. And so Paul, speaking into this, puts forth this contrast. On the one side, what the world regards as wise and powerful, and on the other side, what Christians know to be wise and powerful through God's act in Christ. And as he does, we have to understand that while this was directed right at the immediate local needs of Paul's converts in Corinth, it is quite relevant to our needs on this very day. So Paul has a sharp word. He starts with a very sharp word for them and for us, us who can also get a bit preoccupied with power, who sometimes can be esteem-driven, sometimes a bit status-conscious, sometimes credit-seeking, maybe a little ladder-climbing. And so Paul says this, verse 26, "'Consider your own call, brothers and sisters.'" Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Consider your call, brothers and sisters, boys and girls. While many of us are by human standards, we're successful, maybe impressive and articulate. Maybe we're really well connected. That is not necessarily how each of us sees ourselves. Even as a grown adult, you may look in the mirror and just see a tender little boy who's afraid of failing, a gentle little girl who's self-conscious about her intelligence, a kid who's thankful to be on the team but really just knows he's not the best, an uncertain teenager who really feels the pressure to succeed but just has no direction, a person who hates the way they look, one who wonders if anyone actually loves them. So many of us are truly burdened by imposter syndrome. I went to Princeton Seminary. It is an institution that is filled with incredibly bright minds, really lofty goals, high theology, and frankly, absurdly big words. And during my second semester, I confessed to a professor and a mentor that I really didn't feel smart enough to be there. Like, I didn't feel like I could keep up. I wasn't really sure how I had gotten in in the first place. And do you know what she told me? She said, Casey, every professor here, every member of this faculty has imposter syndrome. These people have written biblical commentaries that are studied by preachers and students all over the world. Their ideas are being studied in colleges and seminaries and churches. Their books are New York Times bestsellers. They have international speaking gigs at conferences and commencements. And what I know because I know them is that every single one of them has imposter syndrome. Every one of them is afraid of being found out. Every one of them is sure that someone will finally figure out that they aren't actually that smart, 
that they aren't that capable, that they don't really have a gift for teaching, that their ideas really aren't that good, that their projects really aren't worth anything. That is the faculty at Princeton she was speaking of. And so sure, we're afraid of getting found out too. We're sure that somebody will find out that we are not clever enough to run this company and we actually don't know what we're doing. That we're not cool enough to have been invited to this event, that we're not rich enough to live in this neighborhood, that we're not smart enough to go to this school, that we're not talented enough to be part of this team, that we're not well-spoken enough to do this job, that we're not anything enough to pastor this church. By our own harsh standards, we are not wise, we are not powerful, we are not noble. We are so ordinary, but still God has called you. Still God has chosen you. God has called and chosen you. And we see it in verses 27 through 29. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to abolish things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. God chose, God chose, God chose what is foolish, what is weak, what is low. God chose, God chose, God chose. And consider your own call, brothers and sisters in Brentwood, Tennessee. Even if the outside world is looking in and would perceive you as such in your broken hearts and in your anxious minds, in your weary souls, not many of you feel overly wise or powerful or noble, but God chooses you. God chooses you, God chooses you, God chooses you. You have been chosen again and again. And I think that Paul in particular was being really challenged by the power in a, in a community, the powerful people in this community who really have grown to think too much of themselves. But I kind of wonder if our challenge is as much that we think too much of ourselves or if by chance when it comes to God's readiness to use us, if we actually think far too little of ourselves. You are not saved by Christ for what you know or what you prove or where you work or where you've been or the school you went to or your business. You're saved by Christ for who you are. You are saved by Christ for who you are. All of you, every little part of ordinary you. And so in verse 30, Paul says, God is why you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So in this incredibly humble life, in this terribly humiliating death, in this powerfully hope-filled resurrection, Christ became wisdom for us. Christ became holiness and became redemption, became righteousness so that we might actually be set apart and claimed by God and set apart for a calling that is uniquely ours. 
Paul is directing us not to deny what is good and what is beautiful and what is right in our lives, but rather to claim it and to proclaim that God's power in our lives and our joy in following God is so good. Not to brag on ourselves, but to celebrate God's provision, to celebrate God's power and desire to call and use even us. Years ago, when I was serving another church, um, I had preached one Sunday and I was standing outside on the front steps and greeting folks after, um, after worship. And people came through the line and we were visiting and there was this one man that one, clearly wanted to speak to me kind of once everybody had gone through. <clears throat> he was waiting and waiting quite patiently. And most everyone had gone by and... Um, and he shook my hand and without letting go, looked me square in the eye and said, I didn't know God let little girls preach. This is a comment that cut into the heart of all of my self-doubt. In that comment, I heard every other comment that someone had made to me about women in the church. Things people had claimed about me stepping out of my place. I heard every person who had thrown those scripture passages at me in an effort to discredit me. I heard the ones complaining about how women's voices are just so hard to hear. I heard people refusing to call my preaching a sermon, but instead a sweet little talk I gave. And with a pit in my stomach, I said, I don't know about that, but I do know that God calls women to proclaim the gospel. Now, after becoming a mom to a little girl, who is filled with curiosity about who God is, who loves to imagine what God looks like, who is fascinated by mommy baptizing bunnies at blessing of the animals, who loves Sunday school, who joyfully runs down this center aisle anytime she's here and feels more at home in this church than just about anywhere in her world except her own actual home, who may not grow up to be a pastor, but who surely might. If I had known my daughter when those words were spoken to me, I would say, he sure does let little girls preach. And they are some of the best preachers I know. We can turn any insult that has been directed toward us, any compliment for that matter, that has been directed toward us into a chance to praise God. That comment that was made on those steps that day was not about me. That wasn't about me. It was about a limited understanding of who God is and who God is capable of calling and using. Because the scope of who God will call and choose, it's limitless, it's without bounds, it is every one of us, it's all of us. It's young and it's old and it's male and it's female and it's white and it's black and it's brown, it's all of us, all of us. 
Now, all in all, Paul is making sure that the Corinthians hear that God prefers not really to call the powerful and the equipped, but rather to empower and equip the ones that God dares to call. God prefers not just to call the elite among the Corinthians, but rather to look to the mass of these ordinary Corinthians and set each of them apart for particular work in his kingdom. It's far more ordinary than any of us expect. It's not kings or presidents or celebrities. It's people who just live their lives and might not change the world, but who are going to dare to stand firmly where they have been planted and they will shake the ground beneath them and all that is around them. It's ordinary people like you and like me. A few weeks ago, this, this grew to mean more to me than it, than it did before. There was an opinion column that ran in the New York Times by a Wheaton College professor named Esau McCauley. And he titled this column, How the Faith That Arose from the Cotton Fields Challenges Me. He talks about being a young black man is who's trying to really reconcile the tension in his faith. He's telling the journey of wrestling with the collision that he had experienced between racial consciousness and spiritual doubt. And he tells this story of how he remained a Christian through it all. Now, his mother's side of the family, these were the Bones, last name Bones. They were from a plantation owned, his ancestors, on a plantation owned by Martha and Matthew Bone. Now, the Reverend Matthew Bone was the pastor of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church in Huntsville, a giant, it is said in the pulpit. But then 120 years later, Reverend Theodore Bone would be called a giant in the pulpit by local black folks. Two men, same last name, preaching in the same general area over a century apart. One is a bone by ancestry. One is a bone by slavery. The ancestors of Reverend Theodore Bone saw the goodness in Christ in spite of the horrific things that were done to them in his name. They maintained this belief in the unrelenting love of God and a trust in his power to dare to bend history. And so now Esau, in his struggle and his own faith, goes on to tell us that the bones in his family didn't march with Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. during the civil rights movement. And this used to bother Esau because the Christian heroes that he knew were the people who defied governments. It was the people who would dare to make this country a little more free. And so the quiet faith of the bones was kind of disappointing. But he goes on and says, but what use is a religion that only produces characters in history books? Was there not room for more ordinary glory? Civil rights activists inspired me, but the people who changed my life were regular members of my congregation. Christianity had a word to say on how the bones lived as individuals. It didn't make them complacent about white supremacy. It made anti-black racism survivable for them. It made it surmountable. At the same time, their faith did the small work of making them better people, Esau said. Their faith made them better people. 
the confidence they had in God's ability to overcome slavery and segregation and white supremacy flowed from a belief in his power to overcome sin and to overcome death. And so, like Esau Macaulay, maybe each of us continues down the path of faith, not because of what faith might be able to do in the whole world, but because of what it might actually just do in each one of us. Maybe we too are looking for a more ordinary glory. We're looking within us and we're looking around us, hoping to see ordinary people living their quiet lives as a response to God's unconditional grace. Mike Iaconelli said it this way. I don't wanna be St. John of the Cross or Billy Graham. I just wanna be remembered as a person who loved God, who served others more than he served himself, who was trying to grow in maturity and stability. Each of us, we're embodying a more ordinary glory. Each of us is engaging in this stumbling, bumbling, clumsy kind of following. Each of us is bringing the mess of our lives to the cross and we're discovering when we do that it's that very mess that qualifies us to be chosen by Jesus and set apart for our calling. This church, this church is filled with people who look really confident and really at peace on the outside. But on the inside, we are all crying out for someone to just love us. We're confused, we're frustrated, we're frightened, we're ashamed, we're struggling to communicate our pain even to our own families, but we look around and we think, well, gosh, they have it so together. They make it to Bible study every week. They're leading groups. They're starting ministries. They're giving massive gifts to this capital campaign. They're speaking in church. And me, I couldn't tell you one Bible verse if I tried. I don't know the creeds by heart. Thank goodness for the slide. I would likely die on the spot if someone called upon me to pray aloud in front of others. The number on my pledge card looks so small. And to that I say, you are so welcome here. You are right where you're meant to be. Your pew, I dare say, is filled with people who are thinking the exact same things as you. You may not preach like Paul, with your words and your ideas, but you proclaim the gospel in the way you love your children. You may not pray like St. Francis of Assisi, but my goodness, each step you take and each breath you take is itself its own powerful little prayer. You may not make music like Taylor Swift or like James Wells, but your belly laugh, I've heard it. I love your belly laugh. Your belly laugh is a joyful noise that honors God. You may not sacrifice like Mother Teresa, but you give so generously of yourself to your friends and your family. You may not lead like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but you are so generous and you are so compassionate as a boss and you take good care of the people entrusted to your care. You may not know scripture like the back of your hand, but I can tell that you know it at the front of your heart. So in two weeks, we're gonna gather for All Saints Sunday to remember the lives of those we've loved and lost. 
those that God has welcomed home to eternity, all with their own story of faith, of success, of failure, of family, of joy, of sadness, of being called by God to use their gifts to serve and to love others. And among the roughly 50 saints we will name, not one of them ever had their name in lights. Not one of them made major news headlines, not a diplomat in the mix, but I wanna tell you about some of them. Among them was an educator who advocated for adult learners in the state of Tennessee and a Chick-fil-A team member who made special time for veterans who came to her restaurant and a hospitality manager who cared deeply for the people entrusted to his care and a pastor's wife who loved the church so deeply, a doctor who cared for each patient with the tenderness of the great physician, among them artists and singers, members of our choir, moms, dads, grandparents. They were sons and daughters. They were really good neighbors and they were sweet friends and they were Sunday school classmates. And in the eyes of the world, they were quite ordinary maybe. But to the ones who loved them most, they embodied an ordinary glory. By their love and presence, they changed the lives of the ones they loved most. Ordinary glory. By their baptism and faithfulness, they grew the heart of this very church and ordinary glory. By their obedience and their sometimes clumsy following, they expanded the beauty of the kingdom of God. It was an ordinary glory. God called the saints ordinary as they were, and God is calling us ordinary as we are. You may not be called to worldly greatness, but you are called to live into your own ordinary glory. Your call story may never make headlines, but one day, when it's you among the saints whose life we are celebrating, your call story will be one of Christ changing you from the inside out, making you a better person because Christ made room in his kingdom for a more ordinary glory. And your call story will be one about the people you loved and whose lives you changed because Christ made room in his kingdom for a more ordinary glory. And your call story will be a tale of ups and downs and success and failure because Christ dared to make room in his kingdom for a more ordinary glory. There is room for a more ordinary glory in the church and in the kingdom of God. There is room for ordinary you and there is room for ordinary me. So live and tell your beautiful, ordinary story, we cannot wait to hear it. Amen.